Genesis chapter number 4, and uh, the Lord has given me liberty. I'd like to start a short series, just three parts, unless the Lord changes my direction. He doesn't really change His direction, but sometimes He'll change mine. Uh, and I want to do it on three sets of brothers that are found in the Old Testament. And Genesis chapter 4 presents to us the first set of brothers. You know, as you read your Bible, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, uh, we know that there is really only one author of the Word of God. There are many penmen, but there is only one author. And as you read the Word of God, you'll find that uh, the Word of God is the most accurate science textbook uh, in human history. There are things spoken of about science that the Bible uh, presents to us that were two, three, four hundred, sometimes thousands of years ahead of what man uh, ever came up with. Uh, but the Word of God is not a science book. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, there's all sorts of uh, aspects of science that are not addressed in the Word of God. Its science is 100% accurate, but it's not meant to be a science book. We could say the same about its history. You'll find no more accurate history uh, than you'll find in the Word of God. One of the most astounding times in uh, human history has been in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because archaeology really began to boom. And uh, every, it seemed like every time they pushed a clump of dirt over, they found something that confirmed the Bible record. Uh, but the Bible's not a history book. It contains history, but there are facets of the Word of God uh, or facets of history that are not addressed in the Word of God because it's not designed to be a history book. The Word of God is designed to be a revelation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, third person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He said this, or, or quoting the Psalms in the book of Hebrews, uh, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The Word of God is given to present us a portrait of the Son of God. And so all through the Word of God, if you read it like it's written on purpose, and it's written on purpose, then you'll find you uncover themes throughout the Word of God. And everything is written for a distinct purpose and given a theme throughout the entire Word of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how we study the Bible, but tonight I want us to look at one of these themes that is presented in the Word of God. And can I read you a few text verses that present a truth? You don't have to turn there with me, but I will give you the references. In John chapter 3 and verse 6, Christ said, "...that which is born of the flesh is flesh." And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Did you catch that? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It'll never be spirit. It's of the flesh. It can't be improved into being of the Spirit. It can't be renovated into being of the Spirit. It's always of the flesh. That which is of the Spirit is always of the Spirit. You say, preacher, sometimes I, I do things... Uh, and the Lord's leading me to do things that, that aren't very spiritual. Well, you're wrong when you say that. The Lord will never lead you to do anything in the flesh. You may choose to do something in the flesh, but that's been your choice. The Lord hasn't led you to do something in the flesh. Everything that is spirit is spiritual. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That teaches me that I'm either in the flesh or in the spirit at any given time. I'm never in both. Amen? I know we're getting a little deep, but put on your waders. That's okay. Uh, these two qualities, the control of the flesh and the control of the Spirit, are mutually exclusive one of the other. If you're walking in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. No man ever uh, operated in a fleshly manner walking in the Spirit. By the same token, if you're walking in the flesh, then you cannot do the things that you would. You cannot do spiritual things walking in the flesh. One of the great tragedies of ministry today is much ministry is, uh, is endeavored upon in the energy of the flesh. And it creates a big show. 
and it cooks up a lot of dust, and it causes quite a stir. But on Monday morning, nothing has changed in the hearts of those that have heard what has been said. Only the Spirit of God can create a lasting difference in the life of an individual. Uh, By the way, and we're going to talk about Cain here in a moment, but I was reading there in the book of Jude in verse number 11, where it talks about uh, those that had crept in amongst them, and it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. You say, what's the way of Cain, preacher? The way of Cain is the attempt to please God and do the work of God in the energy of the flesh. We see a lot of that in this day that we live in. So we have to either be walking in the flesh or the Spirit. Let me read one more to you, and then we'll read our text and we'll pray. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, we have this principle echoed again. Look at verse number 46. The Word of God says, How be it, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Now, the context is speaking about Adam, who was the first man, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who the Bible calls the second man. You say, but preacher, there were lots of people that lived in between Adam and the Lord. That's right, and every one of them was just like Adam. He was the first man, and everyone from him to the Lord Jesus Christ was just like him. We were just like the first man. Then there came along a second man, amen? There came along somebody that wasn't like Adam. There came along somebody that didn't have a sin nature. There came along somebody that was not of the earth and earthy, but there came someone that was from heaven and heavenly. And it says in verse 48, As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So the principle that's being taught here is that every person, or the lost person, let me say this correctly, I don't want to misspeak it, uh, every saved person has two facets to their uh, existence. You have the natural man, which you will never get rid of on this side of glory. It cannot be spruced up, it cannot be sanctified, and it cannot be eradicated. And then you have the spiritual man which has been awakened in you by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's why the Bible says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know what it means to be quickened? It means to be made alive. It means when you got saved, something woke up in you. Before you couldn't communicate with God. Oh, you could pray, but you couldn't have communion with God. Now that you've been born again, you can have communion with Him. Uh, he talks to you and you talk to Him. And so, uh, for the lost individual, the spiritual man has not been awakened yet. He can only operate in that which is fleshly, that which is carnal, that which is dead, that which is decaying. But for the believer, we can operate in either of them. The Bible teaches there is a perpetual contest between these two aspects to our existence. In the Old Testament, we have in these three brothers, sets of brothers, a picture of the contest between the flesh and and the Spirit in three important aspects of an individual's life. I want you to read with me. Genesis chapter 4. Thought I'd get my, uh, my, my introduction way out of the way. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against against Abel his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, 
which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest finding him, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that's that you'd bless your word tonight, that you'd speak to hearts. Lord, we, we have need that we hear from you tonight, that you do a work in our hearts and in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for the blood shed for us. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. We thank you for the Word of God. And just ask that you would uh, speak to our hearts and bless it to our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few moments on the idea, the truth, that the flesh and the Spirit are contrary one to the other in our appeal to the Lord. Let me say that again. The flesh and the Spirit are contrary the one to the other in our appeal to to the Lord. Now, let me go ahead and tell you tonight that uh, in some ways this is going to be a bit of a salvation message. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I, I mean that tonight if there's somebody lost and undone, you're going to hear enough of the gospel that you can get saved if you want to get saved. Amen? But I believe as we endeavor upon this study, and we're to be scripturally honest, and we look at these three sets of brothers, as we look at Cain and Abel, as we look at Isaac and Ishmael, and as we look at Jacob and Esau, we find that here is sin-fallen man... Atonement has been made for Adam and Eve. An animal's life has been given. Blood has been shed. They have been covered by the skins that God had provided for them. But now these two brothers, they're old enough that it is their responsibility to approach unto God. And the question is, how will they do that? Can I say to you that this is a decision that every individual has to make? In fact, that's really the question of life. Is there a God? And if there is a God, how do we make peace with Him? You look at any major, if we want to call it this, religion, you'll find that the thrust of it is to say that there is a God and here's how you make peace with Him. For the Muslim, they say there is a God, He lives on the moon, you make peace with Him by killing others. Uh, the Buddha says uh, that uh, there is the God is within yourself and you uh, worship and make peace with that God through meditation and through self-sacrifice. Uh, the Hinduist, or uh, what's the old word for him? The Hindi. I guess that's Hinduist plural, amen. The Hindi says there's 380 million gods. You make peace with them through abstaining from eating your ancestors, amen. And, uh, boy, I couldn't. Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm thankful I'm saved by the grace of God. But, I mean, if, even if I wasn't saved, I wouldn't want to be a Hindu, amen. I love beef too much. I went to the restaurant today. I never do this, but I went to the restaurant today and got a steak. Amen. That might have been one of their uncles. I don't know. And let me just let you in on something. I don't care. Amen. <laughs> and uh, abstaining from those things and giving gifts unto these gods. The Roman Catholic says that there is a God and you make peace with Him through the church. And on and on we could go to various world religions. It's always been the question, is there a God? And if there is a God, how do we make peace with Him? And now these brothers that know oh so well that there is a God have come to a place where they have to determine how they will make peace with God. How are they going to appeal to the Lord? When I use that word appeal, I like to think the idea of a prisoner. I was seeing where one of those uh, fellows that uh, committed that awful crime back this, he made an appeal and it got rejected. And I say, Amen. And uh, a person that is, you know, he is already condemned, that man is. He's not trying to win the case. The case has already been lost. He's trying to figure out how to get out of trouble. The lost individual, he's already been condemned. We're not waiting for condemnation. The book of John chapter 3 says we're condemned already. The, kind of the, the wrath of God abides upon us. The lost sinner is not waiting to do enough bad till he becomes condemned. He's condemned by who and what he is. He's born condemned in this world that we live in. And so how will he make his appeal to the God of heaven. How will he approach unto God? How will he gain God's favor? I want you to notice three things tonight in our text 
And again, we're examining how the flesh tries to appeal to God and how the Spirit tries to appeal to God. I want you to notice, first off, the requirements that are set forth. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, and in the process of time. You say, what's so important about that phrase? It tells me there was a process of time. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean, there was an appointed time when they had to appear before God. No doubt, uh, Cain would have loved to have put off this appointment. But time had drawn on, and now Abel's getting ready. It is their responsibility. It is upon their shoulders. They have to go before God. Let me say, first off, the first requirement is our presence. Every single uh, person born into this world is going to stand before God one day. That's not a suggestion. That's mandatory. The Bible says it's appointed unto man wants to die, and after this is judgment. All the infidels in the world, they can shake their fist at God. They can claim He doesn't exist. They can claim if He does exist, they don't care anyway. They can call Him petty. They can call Him small. They can call Him a psychopath. They can call Him a narcissist. They can call Him every name that they can find in Webster's Dictionary, but it doesn't change the fact that there's coming a day they're going to have to stand before. And on that day, the Bible says every knee will bow. There's coming a day when they will have to stand before Him. Your children are going to have to stand before Him. Your grandchildren, my, my child's going to have to stand before him one day. First thing we pray for every night is we pray that the Lord will save my son. That's the first thing we pray for when we read the Bible, when we do devotions. We pray that he would uh, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's going to have to stand before God someday. Our friends are going to have to stand before God someday. I was told the other day about a young man, and the Lord knows who it is. Uh, a young man, he'd once been a preacher. Uh, he had once uh, been so. In fact, he, he's preached for us at one time uh, in our youth thing. And now he he claims that he is a uh, a deist. Believes God is the great clockwinder, so to speak. That God has no personal interaction with humanity. Uh, and all of his friends that he's gathered around him are are Muslims. I'll have you know that that young man's going to stand before God one day, give an account for the way he's living and the things he's doing. Let me say this fearfully as a preacher, thinking a lot of ways he's going to give more account than most folks. Just like I'm going to have to give more account than most folks. Every person, whether saved or lost, is going to have to stand before God one day. We will meet God. We know, and I, I'm not, you listen, I'm not a theologian. You're not here for a theology class. You're here for a sermon. But we, we all know that those that are saved appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. That's what Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The lost individuals, Revelation chapter 20 teaches us that they'll stand at the great white throne Judgment. But every single person will stand before God. Let me even take it a step further and say this, that every person is going to have to make up their mind about Jesus Christ. We preached on that this morning about Pilate and how he had determined to let the Lord go, uh, but then the voices prevailed against him. Every single person will make up their mind about Jesus Christ. When you've been presented with the truth, you've got to make up your mind. Let me say this. It's a Sunday night. I'm sure there's more saved people here than lost people. Let me say that even for saved folks, we've got to make up our mind who He is. Uh, most of the people that want to fuss over easy believism and lordship salvation have never made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life in the first place, one way or another. Uh, let me echo what I said this morning, lest there be any confusion. You say, preacher, you preach a lordship salvation. No, I don't preach a lordship salvation. I preach that my Savior is Lord. I didn't understand everything when I got saved. And certainly if I backslide, I'll still belong to Him. There's times when I backslid, there's times I'm going to backslide. I just hate to say it, but that's the infirmity and weakness of the flesh. I didn't understand everything that was going on in my life when I got saved. But when I came to Him, I knew He was Lord. He was Lord. He's still Lord. I didn't come bargaining with Him. I came because I was a lost sinner in need of salvation. He is Lord. That's who He is. And by the way, every time in the Bible, when it never says call upon the name of Jesus Christ. It says call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I found out? It's always backslid church members that want to fuss and argue about that. Most of the time when a lost sinner's under uh, conviction, he don't care what you call him as long as he'll save him. Amen? So uh, there's a lot of fussing and fighting and feuding over that. You've got to make up your mind who Jesus Christ is to you. Is He just prominent? Lots of folks think they're really some kind of Christian because He's prominent in their life. You know, they get on Facebook and they share all them photos. That proves they're a Christian, right? And, uh, you know, they, they, they darken the doorstep of church every now and then. Uh, and you think you're doing good because He's prominent in your life. Let me tell you something. You're not where you need to be till He's preeminent in your life. Not just till, till He's a big deal, but till He's the only deal. Not just till, till he, he... Listen, He don't need to just be your one and only. He needs to be your one and all. Amen? 
And so we're all going to have to make up our mind. We see one of the requirements was their presence. Now let me say, too, that their requirement was their presence. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. <laughs> your, your, your mind's going, you just preached that. No, their presence was required. But then their present was required. They couldn't come empty-handed. Some of you say, now preacher, when I came to Christ, I was empty-handed. No, you weren't empty-handed. I know the songwriter says that in my hand no price I bring. When I came to it, what does God say about it? God says, come, let us reason together. You say, what are we reasoning based upon? He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I've got something that I came to Calvary with. It's not something in of myself. It's not my own. It has nothing to do with my righteousness. But when I came to the Lord, I came based upon the finished work of Christ on Calvary. That's what I came bearing. I said, Lord, save me because of the blood that was shed for me. Every person, when they come before God, they bring something. Some folks, they're planning on going before God and bringing their baptism. And I was looking at my baptism certificate the other day. They put a typo on my baptism certificate. You think that Peter's going to check that at the gate? Should I be worried about that? That's how some folks' theology is. You know, they've got it out of the funny, the papers. And, uh, you know, some folks are, are planning on showing up with their baptism. Some folks plan on showing up. Presenting their church membership card. Let me tell you, let me just let you in on something. You belong to this church, it's best you just leave it at home. I don't know that's going to do much for you when you get there. Some folks plan on showing up and bringing a big old pile of filthy rags called their own righteousness. Everybody brings something to God. And the average person brings their, their own intellect and their own good works to the Lord. You talk to people, you witness to people, you say, have you been saved? They say, oh, I'm okay. And I don't know what that means. Oh, I'm okay. You say, have you ever been saved? And they say, well, my daddy was a preacher. And that's what they're bringing when they show up. What I'm saying is this, and you know I'm using a bit of imaginative and metaphorical language. What I'm saying is this. Everybody, when they make up their mind about Jesus Christ, there's something they're making it uh, their mind up based upon. You see, Cain and Abel couldn't come empty-handed. They had to bring something. So their present is required. But I want you to notice their purpose is required. God saw the heart. I thought this was interesting, and I jotted a note of it down uh, as we were sitting there. Look at verse number 6. Uh, well, let's look at verse 5. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thou countenance fallen? God knew what was going on in the heart of Cain. Can I say that our intentions are something that have to be right when we come to Jesus Christ? You say, preacher, what do you mean our intentions? Well, you know, you hear people uh, say something. Uh, let me tell you something I've heard a hundred times. And, and this, I mean, th this irks me. Is that a word, irk? I think it is. I think you can play it in Scrabble. I've heard people witnessing in this way. I've heard people witnessing and they'll say, well, go ahead and believe on Jesus. Because if you're right and there is no God, it won't hurt you. But if you're wrong and there is a Jesus, then you want to be saved. Ain't nobody ever. I know that's not proper English, but you know what Bob Jones Sr. said? He said, I'd rather hear somebody say, I seen something that saw something than hear somebody say, I have seen something that never saw anything. There, there ain't never been anyone get saved under that principle. You don't, he's, not your, he's not your spare tire that you stick in the back of your uh, car. When a person comes to the Lord, the Lord looks on the heart. That's why we worry so much about false professions sometimes. And I understand that. I understand why we worry about false professions. Let me say, you can never give the gospel to the wrong person. You never give the gospel to the wrong person. You say, what if I give them a false assurance? Well, they're not going to stand on that false assurance. I, I was raised in a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. I didn't rest upon that when the Spirit of God said, you're lost. I heard it loud and clear. God sees the heart. He sees the intentions. I know you say, what's this got to do with flesh and spirit? We're getting there. He sees the intentions. He sees the heart. There's lots of folks that have walked down an aisle because somebody else was going. They had no interest in being saved and so on and so forth. I'm not worried about those people in particular because God knows what's going on in their heart. And why I'm not accountable, listen now, I'm not accountable. I'm, I'm trying to be careful with how I say this. You with me tonight? You Okay. I'm not accountable for every profession that's made. That's between them and God. Now, I'm accountable for the way that I witness to them. I'm accountable uh, for, for the truth that I give them. I am accountable for that. But it's not on me what their intention. God sees their hearts. 
A lot of times whenever I'm witnessing to someone I'll, uh, and they pray, I, I will tell them this. If you meant business with God, if you meant business with God, then He meant business with you. If you were serious with God, He was serious with you. You say, well, what if they weren't serious? That's between them and God. But if they weren't serious, God saw that in their heart. God saw that they weren't serious. God saw they weren't being honest. The purpose, the intentions, that which is in the heart must be pure, must be right when we approach the Lord. You say, but preacher, I don't know if I prayed the right words. God saw your heart. Hey, preacher, I don't know if I cried enough. Well, God wasn't watching your tears. He's watching your heart. You say, preacher, I, you know, I don't know if I said it just right. Well, I don't think any of us say it just right. I, I'll be honest with you. Now, this You're going to think it's funny, but I, I get a little bit worried when their, their prayer is a little too theologically correct. Don't you? you ever? Be, I'm talking to soul winners now. I get a little worried. I, I, I get the idea maybe they're just reciting something that's not coming from their heart. I've heard, I've heard people say some of the most mixed up things, but their theology or their mindset was right. It was correct. They just didn't know how to express it. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't pick apart our prayers like we pick apart a person getting saved their prayers? Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful that the Spirit uh, helpeth me, helps making intercession with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned. I'm glad the Spirit of God straightens our prayers out before it hits the ears of God. Because I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of times I don't know what I need to pray. I'm not talking about praying in an unknown tongue. I'm saying I don't know how to express to God that which my heart desires and needs so greatly. We see their requirement. I want you to notice a second thing tonight. Notice their resource. So Here they are. They must bring something to God. What are they going to bring to Him? Look at verse 3 again. The Bible says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. This is greatly significant what they have brought. Cain brings of the energy of his own hands. Abel brings that which has been entrusted him through stewardship from the Lord. Cain brings that which he has produced. Abel brings only that which he has protected. In this, we have a picture of the way the flesh responds to our need of God and a picture of how the Spirit responds to our need of God. We see the substance of what they gave. Cain brings of the best fruit that he could possibly raise. Abel brings of the firstling of the flock. I'd ask you this tonight, which was the more scriptural of the two? Probably, if you were to look at them, Cain's looked a lot better. But Abel's was the more scriptural of the two. If you were to look back in chapter number 3, you'd find that after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, that God took and slew an animal. We don't know that it was a sheep, just like we don't know that the fruit they ate was an apple. Amen? I don't know. I think it was probably pomegranate. You ever ate a pomegranate? I mean, eating one now messed you up. Imagine what it did then. And I don't know what kind of fruit it was. The Bible does not say and in the same way, the Bible doesn't say it was a sheep or a lamb. We, we like to think it is. And that's fine if you want to imagine that way. If you're drawing a little picture, you draw it that way. I won't fuss at you. But blood had to be shed so that they could be in the presence of the Lord. So God takes those animals and kills them and skins them and takes the skin and lays them over Adam and Eve. This is God's way. He is setting a principle. He is setting a precedent. There's something in the Word of God that we call the law of first mention in, in studying your Bible. You say, what is that, preacher? That teaches us and tells us, and it's borne out all through Scripture, that the first time something is mentioned, uh, the first time something is presented and is mentioned in the Word of God, it has certain traits, certain qualities that bear out all through the Word of God, either to the end of the book or when a dispensational shift takes place that necessitates the change in their meaning. First time that blood is ever shed, it's shed so that sins might be atoned for. First time uh, that death ever enters into the picture, there's something dying so that something else can live. This is the precedent that God had set for them. We see the substance of Abel's offering. You know what the book of Hebrews says? By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You say, what made it excellent? Because it was patterned and modeled after the Lord's sacrifice given for Adam and Eve. So the substance for Abel is one of the firstling of the flock. The substance 
for Cain is of uh, the work of his own hands. I want you to notice, secondly, the source of these things. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, And she again bare his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, this is what I want you to get. I want you to really listen, focus in. Look at me like I'm pretty. Amen? Cain brought that which was natural for him to bring. Cain couldn't bring a sheep because Cain didn't own any sheep. Abel couldn't bring any fruit because Abel didn't have a farm. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. For the lost individual in the energy of his flesh to seek to appease God through his own good works is only natural for him to do so. Uh, let, let me just, can I shiver your timbers? Man's attempt at righteousness through good works is perfectly natural, which is the reason that his will must be broken. His energy and efforts must be obliterated. And he must come to a place where he is at the end of himself, at the end of his strength, before he'll realize that that which is of himself, that which is of the flesh, that which is of his own nature, is insufficient to please God. There's a very interesting transaction that takes place when a person gets born again. Again, I'll say, I didn't understand everything about it when I got saved. I knew I was a lost sinner. I knew Christ had died for my sins. I knew I was on my way to hell. I knew He'd save me if I'd ask Him to forgive me and save me. Let me tell you something. In the years that I've studied this book since then, And I hope in the years to come, as these things are opened up, you begin to see all these different things that took place when you got saved. Things you probably didn't even know was taking place when you got saved. When you got saved, you thought you just got saved. You didn't know that when you got saved, you got justified and redeemed and reconciled and adopted and sanctified and all these different things. And when the lost sinner comes to Christ, ceasing to depend upon himself. And by the way, I think that's a pretty good understanding of what repentance is. Here's the funny thing. There's a lot of fussing and arguing about semantics. And the, the crowd that wants to talk about, uh, wants to accuse everyone of easy believism, most of the time what they think you mean by easy believism is that you can just flippantly pop and gum and laughing and goofing off, come down, not, uh, not have any contrition of the heart, not have any acknowledgement of your sin, and just recite a prayer and go through the motions, and God's going to save you whether your heart was in it or not. I, if that's easy believism, I completely reject easy believism. By the same token, what the easy believism crowd wants to accuse those that preach repentance of is they want to accuse them of saying that repentance is that we sit down and catalog every sin we've ever committed and go through and repent of it individually. Everything that we've ever done, we ask God's forgiveness of it. Listen, that's not what repentance is. It is repentance to confess a sin and forsake it. But for the lost individual, I don't know about you, but I was a ten-year-old boy and I couldn't remember all the sins that I'd committed. There's some folks in this room, no doubt, was in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they got born again. If it was relying upon them being able to remember every sin that they ever committed and ask forgiveness, Friend, you better forget about it. They could have never got saved. You say, what is repentance for the sinner coming to the Savior? Repentance is us ceasing to depend upon self and turning to the Savior. You say, does that include sin? Well, of course it includes sin. Again, I don't find lost sinners under conviction fussing about these things. I find backslid church members and wannabe theologians fussing about these things. When the sinner comes to Christ under conviction, listen, he's not coming and trying to cling on to and keep on to this, that, and the other. He comes broken in need of salvation. Of course he'll pour out his liquor if there's liquor to be poured out. Of course he'll uh, flush his drugs if there's drugs to be poured out. But more than that, repentance is you saying, I'm going to quit bringing of the fruit of my own hands to appease God. And I'm going to depend wholly upon the finished work of Calvary. Abel, Abel was a keeper of sheep. What Abel presented didn't come Abel, it came from God. Am I right when I say that? You say, well, you know, what Cain had came from God. I'm aware of that. But you see, when Cain looked at it, what a fitting picture this is. Though what Cain had came from God, when Cain looked at it, he saw the work of his own hands. By the way, the lost sinner, depending on his own good works, uh, he, th- he thinks that's something he's done. But uh, listen, he wouldn't have the money to give to charity. He wouldn't have the, the arms and the legs to go and help people. He wouldn't have the mouth to uh, try to encourage people and so on and so forth if God hadn't given it to him. So even that which he's depending upon to be the work of his own hands is in a roundabout way come from God. But what Abel had,
had was acknowledged as being holy from the Lord. Something that was merely given of God, all Abel had to do was take it and present it before the Lord. That's all Abel had to do. He was a steward. Listen carefully now. He was a steward of the sheep, the lamb that was slain. Can I say that again? I want you to get that. Spirit just gave that to me. It's more profound than either me or you understand, okay? He was a steward of the lamb that was slain. You know what you are as a justified believer? You are a steward of the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is. Justification is us being placed in Christ so that His righteousness stands for our righteousness. That's what justification is, right? That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Paul says that Saul of Tarsus, he's dead. But here I am alive. How am I alive? Uh, He said, it's not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, listen now, of the Son of God. Not I live by uh, the faith in the Son of God. He says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You'll find that same phrase used in Philippians chapter number 3 where he says uh, that he would uh, not have his own righteousness, but that which is uh, the righteousness of God by the faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is that Christ's righteousness has been robed upon us. And we are stewards to take that righteousness and allow it to live through us through our surrender to the Spirit of God that the righteousness of Christ might be once again manifest to a lost and dying world that God can save them and change them and make them something new. We are stewards of the Lamb that was slain. Abel was merely a steward of the Lamb and he brought that which was proper, that which was natural. Now I want you to notice a third thing we see not third overall, but third in this and the sub-point and this, that, and the other. And we got at least another 65 minutes, so hang on. Uh, I want you to notice the substance. And I want you to notice the source. But I want you to notice the statement that was made by their offerings. What was Abel saying by his? What was Cain saying by his? Let me just give you a few rapid things. Here's the irony. Abel was saying, I'm not Abel. Cain was saying, I can. Abel was saying, your way is right, God. Cain was saying, your way is wrong, God. Remember the precedent set down in chapter number 3. Abel was saying, I can't do any better than you've already done. Cain was saying, by my own righteousness, I can exceed your righteousness. That's how the flesh responds to the cross of Calvary. That's why the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is an offense to them that perish. You know why folks are offended by the cross? Now listen, you'd think that folks would just be flattered somebody loved them enough to die for them. But is that the reception we have to the cross of Calvary? I was interested. I, I mentioned it this morning. I'll mention it again. It'll be okay. Uh, I, you know, I probably went and I, I watched a little bit of that national prayer breakfast and and I, I listen, I know I wouldn't cross every T and dot every I the same with a with a, a, a Presbyterian, let alone a Presbyterian race car driver. And I'm sure I wouldn't agree with everything that uh, Mr. Walter believed, but I appreciate that he gave the gospel. I appreciate what he said. I appreciate that he looked the most powerful man in the world, or we're told that, I worry now. But he, he, he looked at him and he said that good guys go to hell. If you die without Christ, you'll, you'll die and go to hell. I appreciate that. Something that's interesting. Get on YouTube. You say, oh, preacher, you're making mountains out of molehills. No. Body language will tell you something. Body language will tell you something. And you ought to watch that video sometime. You ought to see the look on the president's face. Our president of the United States. You say, that's disrespectful. No, that's being honest. You ought to love and pray for your president. I I don't love his politics. I don't love his policy. I don't like anything about him. But the love of Christ constraineth me that I ought to pray for that man. You ought to pray for his salvation. You ought to see the look on his face. It was offensive to hear that. Flew in the face of his entire world ideology and philosophy. You say, why is the cross such an offense to those that perish? It's an offense because it tells them that the fruit and vegetables that they bring to the Lord aren't good enough. We worry so much about the down and outs, it's the up and ins that we need to be worried about. Let me tell you something, there's a lot of folks with good social standing that are going to die and go to hell because the cross of Christ is an offense to them. 
They don't want to admit that they need salvation. They don't want to admit that their membership to some lodge or that their uh, tax bracket that they operate within or that their righteousness and charity that they try to exhibit, they don't want to admit that's insufficient. They don't want to admit that they can't do it. And it won't be until you finally see your flesh as a failure that you ever get saved. Nobody ever got saved but what they realized their flesh couldn't. Couldn't save them. Couldn't accomplish it. Couldn't do it. You say, oh, preacher, when I got saved as a, as a little boy or as a little girl, I mean, I didn't have all this running through. No, you didn't have all this running through your head. It was a lot simpler than that. You know what you had running through your head? I need to be saved and I can't do it. And what Abel's sacrifice implied was that he couldn't do it. There was nothing he could do grander than what God had already done in the sacrifice he had given. Everything looked back to that sacrifice. Everything looked forward to another sacrifice. Everything looked back in example to that sacrifice. And every sacrifice looked forward in expectation to another sacrifice. What God did in the garden was just an image of what God would do at another garden 2,000 years later. And Abel's actions exhibited that he could not do it and that God must. I want you to notice finally, we see the requirement, we see the resource. What are the results of the two? Well, I want you to notice, we know what happens with Abel. The Lord has respect to Abel's offering. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, but unto Cain, or let's look at verse number 4. The Bible says, and the Lord had respect, at the end of that verse, had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Let me just start. This isn't even in my notes, but let me just touch on God's designation. God looked at those two sacrifices and He said, Abel's I'll accept, Cain's I'll reject. I respect Abel's, but I reject Cain's. Let me tell you something. You better make good and sure that when you leave this world, you're not trusting in the works of your own righteousness. You better make sure there's been a time in your life when you've called upon the Son of God, you've looked to the Lamb that was slain to do that for you, which you could not do for yourself. You better make sure. Because if you reject Jesus Christ, we're not waiting to find out about you. It's already settled about you. You're under condemnation already. God's already said, I'll not respect your offering. I'll not listen to your pleas. There's going to be many in that day. We touched on it this morning. They'll say, Lord, Lord. That's the other side to that lordship thing. There's lots of folks call him Lord that aren't Lord, that he's not the Lord of their life. But there'll be many that'll say, Lord, Lord, cast out devils. We've preached. We've done many mighty works. So what are they saying, preacher? They're saying, look at the fruit of my righteousness. They'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Notice what it says. I never knew you. It says, it's like I didn't even see what you did. In other words, it's like all that you brought before me, I just had no respect for it. We see God's designation. Notice now verse 5. The Bible says, But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Notice God's declaration. This is not the end of the story for Cain. It's going to go on a little further. We know that. But at this point, Cain has a decision to make. He's struck out. Now, let me say this, that for the lost sinner, he don't get multiple chances and tries. You stand in the presence of God with only your righteousness, only your good works. You don't get a second chance. Cain's standing before God. The Lord says, Cain, why are you angry? What's wrong? Why are you upset? He says, I'm upset because you didn't have respect to my offering. And the Lord says, Cain, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? I'm thankful that the Lord is no respecter of persons. I touched on it last Sunday morning, but let me just echo it again. One of the, one of the 687,000 reasons I'm not a Calvinist is because the Lord is no respecter of persons. If Cain had done right, Cain would have been accepted. But he didn't do right. So what does the Bible say? Sin life at the door. Oh, we could get into the language. We could get into the etymology. We could get into the figures of speech about that. 
But suffice it to say that in one way or another, what God is saying is if you don't do this, Cain, there's unfinished business that needs to be tended to. Cain, if you don't bring the shed blood, then there's unfinished business to be tended to. Oh, how we need to tell those that we love that they may have their own righteousness, but their righteousness is not sufficient. God's declaration is that if you're standing in your righteousness, there's unfinished business. Only when you stand and, hey, we'll never be able to say it is finished. There was someone on the cross of Calvary that said, it is finished. And until His righteousness has been robed upon you through justification, till you've been born again, it's not finished. Sin lieth at the door. We see God's declaration. I want you to notice finally, uh, or second to finally, or third, or I'm just going to quit telling you. Cain's determination. Look at verse 8. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Let me say this, that eventually one of the two, for the, for the lost sinner, one of the two is going, going to win out. One of the two is going to win out about this decision about how we approach unto God. And either they'll come to a place where for the most part, I won't say this is the case every time, but for the most part, they'll either come to a place where they're comfortable in their own righteousness, they've rejected what the Word of God teaches, and unless they get shook up in a big way, and unless the Spirit of God can penetrate their heart in a particular way, they're going to stay in that condition. That's Cain. There came a place, the, the Word of God, picture it this way, the Word of God is speaking to the heart of a sinner. He knows there's something wrong. He knows he must make a choice. But his flesh wins out. He chooses to reject Jesus Christ. And Abel's dead. And the spiritual man has been quieted. And the work that God would seek to do in, in a quickening his spirit and in making him a new man and in changing his life has been quieted. Cain said, I'll not do what God wants me to do. The flesh, and I'll say it again, will never be sanctified. The flesh cannot be, uh, the, on this side of glory, it'll never be eradicated. Your flesh, it doesn't matter if your flesh dresses up in a, in a suit and tie and carries a King James Bible and cuts its hair right and sings the right songs and knows all the right language. Your flesh is still your flesh. It doesn't matter if your flesh learns how to, imi- how to mimic and how to imitate. And you get a form of God. That, you know what a form is, right? Those of you that poured concrete, you know what a form is, right? If you look at that form on a two-dimensional plane, it looks just like that concrete slab that's getting ready to be poured. But you start looking at it from above the way that God looks at it and you see that it's hollow, that it's empty inside. You look at it from the front or from the side and everything looks okay. But if you see it the way God sees it, you see that it's empty and hollow and there's missing something missing inside of it. In your flesh, it don't matter if it's dressed up in its Sunday best. It doesn't matter if it's carrying the right Bible. It doesn't matter if it looks the right way. It doesn't matter if it can fool your preacher or if it can fool your family. It can fool your church family. If it's flesh, it's still flesh. It's still flesh. Cain says, I'll not do what God has asked me to do. Look at what it says there, verse number 10, uh, or verse number 9. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. It's interesting, and I'm, I'm going to close this way, and I, and I feel the Spirit of God leading me to do this. Notice Cain's destination. Look there at verse number... Uh, or verse number 13, 14. The Lord says to Cain, says you're going to be a vagabond, you're going to wander the earth. Cain said, My unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Look at verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. We see Cain's destination. The lost sinner that depends upon the righteousness of his flesh, his destination is determined. His destination is settled. His destination. You say, what can a lost sinner do about that? Notice that the Lord says, the blood of thy brother Abel crieth out to me from the ground. In other words, there was a voice of blood that was crying out to the Lord. Only a voice of blood could quiet that first voice. Cain, no doubt, I'm sure, in his life tried to pray. Most men do, one time or another. His prayers were not answered. All God could hear was a voice of blood. No doubt there were times when Cain said, I, 
I'm sorry. Like Esau, he wandered about seeking repentance but could not find it. Uh, the Bible says he's a vagabond. He was a vagabond. If the Bible says he's cursed, then he's cursed. No doubt Cain wandered the earth for the rest of his life. May have said sometime, oh, that I might find the presence of God. Oh, that God might hear me sometime. God never heard that because the voice of the blood of his brother Abel was crying out. All the fruit, all the vegetables, all the righteousness he could muster couldn't drown out the voice of blood. You know what that blood was saying? That blood was saying, satisfy me. That blood was saying, guilty. That blood was saying, wicked. That blood was saying, sinner. Cain's a sinner. He's guilty. He's slain. He's took my life. That language is used throughout the book of Revelation and it evokes the idea of crying out for justice and crying out for vengeance. And the lost sinner... He may try to pray to God. And I believe you can fuss with me. You can argue with me if you want. I don't believe God hears a sinner's prayer except for the sinner's prayer. I don't believe... I know there'll be lost folks. I mean, there'll be somebody who'll write into God post or something and talk about... I mean, they don't know God, but God answered a prayer and hit them over the head and they saw a vision and met Elvis at the Waffle House. I get that. But let me tell you something. I find nowhere in the Bible where God is committed to answer the prayer of a lost sinner except when He cries unto Him for salvation. God committed Himself to that when He said, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, If any man come unto Me, I will in no wise cast him out. God is bound by His Word to hear the contrite sinner coming to Him to salvation. I don't believe He hears any other prayer that a sinner might pray to Him. You say, Why is that? When they pray, there's a voice that drowns them out. The blood of their guilt, the blood of their sin, the blood of their punishment cries out and says, that a restitution is needed. A recompense must be paid. You say, what is it that can change that? What is it that can fix that? Well, the voice of another person's blood. Abel's blood cries out and says, I demand justice. The blood of Christ cries out and says He's been justified. Abel's blood cries out and says, Guilty! The blood of Christ cries out and says, grace. The only thing that can change the destination of a lost sinner is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The flesh can never, ever, ever sanctify or justify. If you've got a lost loved one, you ought to encourage them to go to church. But can I tell you something better than encouraging them to go to church? Encourage them to be saved. They can go to church and still die and go to hell. God, a lost loved one, you want to, you want God to make a difference in their life. Don't encourage them to pray, except encourage them to pray and accept Christ. Don't just encourage them to get real religious. Encourage them to get redeemed and changed by the blood of Christ.